Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, we have Nick Kane, the head physio at Essendon Football Club in the AFL. Nick is also the founder and managing director of the Sports Map Network and the owner of Complete Balance Physiotherapy. Me and Nick connected recently as fellow podcasters, and we decided it would be a great idea to invite Nick on Informed Performance to discuss some of the physical demands and strategies that he deploys in the AFL, and in particular when he manages hamstring injuries. Nick really lifts the lid on his rehab strategy at Essendon, so you're in for an insightful episode. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Informed Performance is a proud partner of Humac Norm by CSMI. By using the Humac Norm Isokinetic system, you can see what you are treating. An Isokinetic test measures maximum muscle capacity through range of motion. So when you're comparing an athlete's involved sides results to their uninvolved, this system makes it easy but objective to see where strength deficits exist to help you design a very efficient path to function. Then follow-up testing on the machine will confirm if your athlete or athletes are on the right path or if changes still need to be made. To learn more about the new Humac Norm and their refurbished machines, visit humacnorm.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and here is today's episode with Nick Kane. Nick, welcome to the show, mate. It's uh, it's great to get you on. Eddie, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure listening to your podcast over the last couple of years, mate. I really enjoyed a lot of the content, so good to be able to jump on board and, and uh, have a chat to you. Yeah, likewise, and uh, I'll very uh, early on admit that when we kind of started our podcast, I used yours a lot as a, as a framework for how to interview uh, clinicians and kind of create clinical-based conversations and podcasts. So, uh, yeah, a lot of copycatting was done from me to you. So uh, I, I thank you for that. Oh wow, that's uh, yeah, right. I'll uh, I'll take that as a, as a as a compliment. I certainly found she's uh, early on doing the podcast very very messy, like my ones, and, and even still, like you finish your podcast, you're like, oh god, what sort of line of questioning was that? Or didn't work that very well. It's just one of those things you just uh, slowly feel you get a lot better at over time. But it's amazing. Then you look at some guys who do interviewing for like a career, like a, the Dentons and the, and the different people on sort of um, on TV. And geez, they do a good job just to keep the questionings question line um, on track. It's certainly a challenge. Yeah, I mean, just mention sports map, and we'll kind of um, we'll get into that more as the conversation goes on. But can you just? go through your background and uh, kind of tell everyone who you are if they haven't come across you just yet and bring us up to speed. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a sports physio. I live in Melbourne. Uh, my full-time job now is in the head lead or head physio at the Essen Football Club, which is in the Australian Football League, which is the professional football competition here. And might touch on that a little bit more around that uh, sport for those who don't know too much about it in the UK and US. But 
Um, I mean, we get 100,000 people at some games throughout the year, especially finals. It's, it's a super popular sport here. Um, there's 18 teams. So I've been involved in that competition now for almost 10 years and uh, started off as a rehab uh, rehab physio, rehab coach uh, for the first few years and then moved into more of a 2IC physio role and has been in the, and have been in the current role I'm in now for it's my third, uh, fourth season, I think. Uh, so that's obviously the, the predominantly my week and that's a full-time role. So, But within that, uh, I've been lucky to start a, a physio clinic uh, nine or so years ago and that's built into well, it's complete balance physio now. So we've got a couple of clinics and 10 staff or 10 physio staff uh, who are all awesome. Uh, so I was sort of uh, staying on track with some of those clinical things uh, outside of the sports setting and it's really great to work with those guys and, and still do a little bit at the, the clinic uh, here and there as well as just collaborate with the, the great team we have there. Um, and then obviously, yeah, you mentioned sports map a bit, so I balance uh, those two things across with sports map, which is, uh, uh, I guess, uh, not too dissimilar to, to, to you guys in the sense of like an education provider. Uh, we're sort of really focusing on the sports rehab and um, sports rehab, prevent injury prevention, injury management space uh, for clinicians, a little bit more, I guess, you're more experienced clinicians uh, with a really keen interest in sport. And that started 10 years ago with some courses and conferences that I sort of started simply because I was a bit fed up with the courses I was attending as a physio. I, I wanted some stuff that was a little bit more in-depth, uh, a little bit more practical and a great opportunity to network with different people. So I just felt like I wasn't getting that from the courses that were offered at that time. So we started putting together... Uh, the course that we thought people would want or I wanted at the time, which was, you know, delving deeper into like groin injuries or hamstring injuries and spending some real quality time on that through assessment, uh, injury rehab and actually passing through some rehab stages, doing those progressions, uh, feeling what they're about and then stepping through to obviously return to play. And that's where most of our courses have spent their time through through that space over the years. And, um, yeah, since then we've probably run a number of con- conferences and courses to, you know, have people from overseas come to Australia uh, to do that, likes of Edna King, Jordan Menaguchi, uh, and have other many other people sort of involved in that space from Australia, and uh, yeah. So, and, and more recently, just moved into what we call our masterclass platform, which is uh, online online learning, I guess. And that started from well, you mentioned the podcast. It sort of started a lot from you know, if I'm listening to your podcast or uh, a Pacey podcast, or I always found that there was I'd be really keen and, and listening in, but I sometimes couldn't visualize what they were talking about. I'm like, what, what is that exercise he's actually referring to? Or how is he actually doing that assessment? And that's probably where the idea started would be like how good a podcast to learn, but how good would it be to actually have that but in a visual context where I can see what they're actually doing, look at the exercise, look at how, you know, they're looking at the athlete. Uh, and that's where that sort of was born out of. And, and essentially now it is, it is essentially that. It's a practical uh, an informal approach to different injury management uh, concepts and things across uh, a range of topics from, you know, uh, this frank to syndesmosis to hamstrings to groins to hips uh, and some of the, the best clinicians on there. So people can always um, swing across the website and have a look at that anytime. Cool. I mean, everyone's busy, but you sound incredibly busy with those three big buckets uh, to occupy you. I don't know how you do all three of those. Yeah, that's how I was mentioned that to you last week. I get asked that a little bit at times, and it certainly uh, comes down to having a tremendous uh, support team. Obviously, my wife Jess does a tremendous job. We have like a, a beautiful fourteen-month-old daughter uh, now, so that's kept us uh, very busy in the recent times. But also, um, 
you know, an awesome team at the physio clinic and at SportsMap as well. So the guys who work there do all the grunt work these days, which is phenomenal. And uh, I'm lucky to be able to just, when I'm at Essendon, to, you know, be really present there and, and try to be the best physio I can and, and knuckle down and try to do a really sound job there and uh, keep working towards what, what we want there, which is obviously, you know, I want to be sort of the very best medical and high-performance team we can within the competition and wider space. So uh, every year you're sort of uh, picking things up to try and be better and find things to improve the program and what we're doing. So constantly on that um, that rabbit warren, that chase to, to be better in, the, in there, which is why sometimes some of this learning stuff across SportsMap and, and, you know, podcasts like yours and things like that are really important because they allow us just to keep our minds open and keep thinking about, uh, you know, what we can be doing better and, and where to improve. You know, you mentioned Essendon then. Can you talk through kind of the AFL, maybe some of the physical demands? I'm aware that uh, maybe in the UK and Europe, but particularly in the States, there'll be a lot of people who aren't as familiar with what the AFL is. Um, can you kind of walk through what the game demands are? Yeah, for sure. I was in the States just recently, actually, and uh, part of the press, I just did a small little snippet of what the game is about a little bit and rightly or wrongly at times I refer to it as a little bit of a cross between soccer and rugby and that would upset a few people but I guess the concept of what I'm trying to get there is that there's contact, there's tackling um, and there's the 360 degree nature within soccer which involves kicking and um, things like that. So if you sort of pull that together, it's um, it's a game that's yeah played on a big wide oval. Um, it, it's happening all around you. It's not like a, a linear place game like rugby uh, there's 18 athletes against each other at one point in time with a, with a few on the interchange. Uh, the game goes for around two hours. Uh, and, yeah, I guess as a general numbers of things, uh, like around 12 to 16 kilometres of, of volume um, per game, uh, and that sort of ranges. Some guys will be above that, some below, but as an average. Um, and I guess within that, you know, we talk a lot about high-speed running and, and determine, I guess, where we where we phrase high-speed running starting, but let's just say it's at 25 kilometres an hour or, or something around that mark, anywhere from sort of 300 to 1,000 plus metres per game of that sort of high threshold running uh, within that. Um, and, and, you know, that might spread across anywhere from, you know, 20 to 60 efforts above that speed. Uh, and then further to that, I guess, for the high-speed running demands, you might be talking around, you know, metres above 85%. Uh, of their max so anywhere from you know 10 for probably some bigger guys out to sort of 80 or 100 meters for, for those guys who are, who are a lot faster and probably expose above that speed threshold anywhere from two to five six times a game so I guess the concept of what I'm getting across there is you're asking like for this high volume of running all right but within that there's uh, you know a lot of high speed running in, in relative demands to some other sports across a sort of a, a longer time period uh, high efforts, high demands, a lot of XL D cells, and clearly the contact and just that metabolic demands of that contact and uh, bash crash style of nature um, plays a role. And um, yeah, I guess where that leads us is that I think we're sort of optimally placed to to get injuries at times within within this sport. Um, and there's some really good uh, surveillance. Uh, data over I think it's almost 25 years now from like John, it's called the Orchard Report or John Orchard Injury Report and that's made up of stats which has been taken from every team over the last yeah, 20, 25 years which details the extent of you know most time loss injuries and the incidence of injuries every year so it's a really valuable piece of information for all the teams that we get access to um, and it's available to, to the wider public um, to I guess uh, yeah look at 
yeah, and to know what our sort of key areas of, of injuries and time loss are that we can really uh, hone our approach to where most of our prevention management strategies would apply. And, um, you know, without going into full detail of those injuries, I guess hamstrings are certainly play a huge role in uh, our injury space. Uh, I think if you're doing well, you might get three to four hammies a year and you don't really want too much more than seven. But I think the average sits around six to seven injuries a year, uh, hamstring injuries that is, and, and hopefully – uh, most of those are not on the severe end and you're probably going okay. Uh, calves have certainly increased in recent years uh, and, the, and the time loss injuries to calves is sort of something that's sort of crept up over the last five years we've found. Clearly knees is, uh, is an ongoing thing, especially probably the ACL component. Uh, ankles um, play up. Obviously, there's a high incidence of ankle injuries and often they don't miss too much, but with the syndesmosis and a few other things, we see that probably play a, a role in most um some time loss injuries as well as groins and stress fractures, probably to name a few. Um, so they're probably, you can get a sense there that it's a lower limb-based sport and injuries. We do get shoulder and contact-based injuries, but other than maybe a shoulder dislocation that results in surgery, it doesn't result in too much time loss. Um, but, yeah, we predominantly deal with a high number of lower limb injuries and, and, and niggles across the season. You mentioned that calf injuries have uh, perhaps been on the way up or, you know, more incidents. Do you know what's causing that in, in the AFL? No, no, I certainly don't. But I guess, I mean, there's um, uh, many uh, theor- theories around, I guess, where that might be coming from and whether that's just the changes in the demands of the game and um, how fast it is and the workload of it um, and also some changes in rotations and different things that they put on recent um, seasons that, you know, limits the amount of uh, rotations players can come on and off the ground um, and just the surfaces and the length of the season and, and pre-season. Um, it's a really hard one to put a, put a finger on, I guess. It could also be the case that, you know, uh, one of those things that just didn't get a whole lot of attention within the space um, as well and sort of caught us by surprise a bit um, and then, you know, slowly uh, both the research and probably our knowledge of how to address these and, um, maybe condition, hopefully condition the calves to, you know, get less of that injuries is certainly on the up. And a colleague of mine or an ex-colleague of mine in Brady Green has done a lot of sound research in that space, a PhD uh, on calf injuries, which was really based off the, a lot of statistics from the AFL. So that's a really good reference point to start with some reading as well as, um, you know, I think some of guys like I think you might have had uh, Glasgow on your podcast at one point in time. I think some of the work they're doing around in Irish rugby around some of their calf profiling things is is really sound and leading the way. So I guess, uh, I mean, you could pull out any number of theories around why the calf is increasing. I guess from my end, it's, uh, it's up to us to try to now, uh, especially at my club, to reduce that incidence and hopefully improve our rehab space so we're not getting as many. In the in the states, rehabs kind of divvied up between AT and physio. In Europe, it's you know predominantly physio. How does how does your kind of role as a physio work in the AFL? How how's the department structured? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question because uh, uh, yeah, I had we had a visitor actually to our club recently. He was uh, working in rugby in Japan. Um, and he was amazed at how integrated our physio and SNC and, and high performance team was. Uh, and he says, obviously, he's worked in New Zealand rugby, and they've been similar, but certainly across different uh, places within the world, we know that there's like a big separation between some of these fields. And I mean, for us, it's, it's highly integrated, um, almost as if it's just purely one team that sort of flows on. I guess 
where does physio sit within that? I, I guess uh, I see physio as a really important part in both um, rehab, monitoring and, and profiling. So if we touch on each of those things to a, to, to a component, I guess, first and foremost, just within a normal week in a weekly cycle, the physios would probably be the first touch point around what we do as like a weekly monitoring or a weekly screening process, which, you know, falls in line with your standard uh, groin squeeze and hamstring pull and some, and some hopping tests to sort of just get a gauge on how they might have come out of that game and trying to pick up anything that might be new for us, um, as well as then maybe looking at some finer things, which without going into like, you know, too much nuance around it, but I think it's still relevant and important to look through things like our hamstring flexibility and how they've responded with that and how it is week to week, uh, their hip range of motion, um, how they're maybe progressing along with some of their hip strength markers. So we do, we do a sort of quick fire check of some of these key things every week, as well as those first few tests we, we mentioned there. And, uh, that would provide obviously week to week data, and we'd be looking at changes in those data, and that's that's in reference to the hamstring pull and, and groin squeeze and hopping. And if that was something pops out to us, um, that all, all I'm really looking for there is something that's sort of against the norm. And yeah, we have obviously um, data plots that would you know designate as a flag, but ultimately I'm looking for a change, and that might be where they're typically pain free on something, and all of a sudden they feel a little bit different, or their powers usually feels really good, and they've dropped that power. And for me, that's just about the physio's role then to be like, all right, come over, let's have more of a detailed look, let's make an informed decision and it's up to the physio to make a, a decision on the sound process of what we're doing there. So we would have a, a really clear process on, you know, if it is a groin, what's the phys- what tests are the physio then going to look through so it's consistent across like the three or four staff at physio so we don't just get all lost down different pathways. Um, and then, yeah, working from there really closely with the SSC team and the guys taking training, if there needs to be modifications made, we do that. Uh, to optimise whether it's main skills or making sure they're ready for the game. So where that physio space is, I guess it's super important to have a really close knowledge of the intricate details of each player uh, and what's normal for them and what's not normal, what's a significant change and what's not. You've got guys who will report a lot more um, and, you know, that's probably okay and you can listen to that and then you, you need to know the guys who, you know, often don't tell you too much and all of a sudden they're saying their foot's a bit sore, like that's enough to really have a, a sound detailed look. So it's probably setting the week up um, and then really important that physios are on top of things to just track that through the week. So if we've picked up that his hamstring was there and we're going to implement some practices about how to optim- optimise that, whether that's some treatment-based work or some exercise or some load modification, but then we obviously need to review that throughout the week and make sure that's getting back to the level we really need it before we're going to expose them to, to the higher demands of whether that's training or the game. Uh, happy to chat through any of um, monitoring stuff in a little bit more detail. Um, but uh, I guess then that moving on to, I guess, where I sit on the profiling thing, and I think I use profiling as a term that, uh, you know, certainly in a performance and SSC space, we talk about the performance profiling that might be doing some counter-movement jump and mid-thigh pull and, and really look at things to optimise what targets they're going to do within their training and their uh, gym space and, and on-field. But I guess... For where I like to really work in this space is uh, really nailing down our, our profiling around some what I call uh, isolated muscle groups or uh, or energy leaks in quotation marks or something that could be deemed an energy leak. So if I'm really poor with hip abduction or really poor with an isolated calf strength, you'd think that's going to translate into an energy leak in a performance um, movement. So for us uh, as a physio team, we would really take close attention to detail and profiling the guys across their hip charts. So that's hip extension, hip abduction, hip flexion, um, hip adduction, 
and, and occasionally with some uh, hip internal and external rotation as well, as well as um, our profiling stuff through our counter movement jump, uh, seated calf isometric test. And um, they're probably the, the go-to ones uh, at the moment and um, making sure, I guess, putting that all together and, and putting it in place with what we think is a, a required level for our sport or for this athlete um, to target and to get towards. So uh, we work closely with the SSC team in that. So if I profile someone and we find that their calf strength's down or their uh, hamstring strength's not at the level or their hip strength is is needs some work, then we'd get that within the program and that might be driven from the physio to do some individual sessions with them um, or it might be sort of working with the SSC guy and saying, hey, let's get this as an exercise that he routinely does in the session. Uh, it's not rocket science to that, but I guess it's, um, you know, it's it's one to, t- it's, it's important to obviously test something and if you're going to test it, how are you acting on it and how is it going to be reassessed and to improve it? So I think that's where in the past, I reckon years ago, I'd be like, oh, we might test something. Yeah, he's not very good at this. And then four weeks later, it's, it's you know, the wiser and it just flows on. So for us, it's just a re- about that routine follow-up, routine check and making sure that that's progressing uh, across the season. We do that like three time points at least across the season. Um. I'll have a spell there. You got any questions on that before maybe we touch on rehab? No, that's all great. And I uh, appreciate the, the appreciate you lifting the lid on what you do. Yeah, okay. No, that's fine. And then, yeah, certainly from a rehab, which I think we're going to touch on some of that um, a little bit further in where the physio space. But uh, for me, I think the physio plays like a, a really important role, but so does everyone within athletes rehab. Um, for... I guess um, without going to the full detail, because I think we'll touch on it with a hamstring example. But I think um, one first and foremost is when you get an injury, um, how does what role does the physio play in identifying those things that potentially are contributing to, to that injury? Uh, I think sometimes it's easier for a young athlete if you get someone in, they just basically usually they just really lack capacity and, and lack the strength, and to pick up that stuff, it's pretty easy, and your rehab's pretty sound. It's sort of like they don't have endurance, they don't have strength through their hamstrings or what have you, and that's clearly just got to get that to the level. But probably for the older athletes or the more experienced guys that have been around for a few years, the level of capacity is at the required space that you want it, but they still have managed to get injured. So what do you do then and how do you work through that? And I think that's where, um, you know, being a bit been creative and, and also exploring things a little bit more in depth with the team and with the athlete to uh, I guess hypothesize why you think some of that might be happening and then how do we address it and how do we get that better is is probably one of the key challenges within rehab as a physio and uh, yeah and just working closely with your rehab coach or your SNC team in um, how you space that out every, every week and and I think uh, I try to limit handovers in in our rehab process so that is whereby if I'm the physio and five days later I'm like yep see you later you're with you're with Tim the rehab guy and then the Tim will pass on to the high performance I think it's Largely for us, it's like if I'm the physio and the rehab coach, we'll just work with that athlete all the way through his hamstring rehab and, you know, uh, the rehab guy will be on field with him, uh, take him through his speed progressions and his run progressions. Maybe I'll get some eyes on his hamstring loading um, in the gym, but otherwise the S&C or rehab guy will take him through all these exercises in the gym. And I think where I think that's important is because each day or the follow-up day, I'll reassess him and monitor the response to, to that. So if I'm seeing a change in you know, hamstring length or it's feeling a bit tight on one side and that sort of thing. It's really important to, I guess, uh, get a sense on where the athlete is at every day, how they're responding. If they're just eating that workload up, then we can sort of progress along a bit quicker and if it looks like they're 
sort of struggling a little bit and pulling up a bit sore here and there, then obviously working with the with the coach and saying, well, let's uh, let's modify a little bit here. We might need to just slow down for a few sessions and and get our strength back up and reload from there. Yeah, um, you know, feel free to pick any injury as the kind of anchor, but also feel free to carry on with the hamstring one if it's easiest. But can you yeah. walk me through maybe what are the kind of what are the aspects or considerations that you make when you're planning and setting up the rehab process? Um, you know, perhaps the key steps and uh, maybe what that involves for you. Yeah, yeah, uh, I will definitely try to, and certainly, uh, obviously, uh, I think I've touched on this before. Like, obviously, rehab is such an extensive process, and um, to sort of get it all out and, and make it sort of come out in a nice, consistent flow and sound uh, really easy is a difficult thing because it's obviously a a day-to-day uh, process that you work through every day and make decisions based on that. But I, I think, um, as I alluded to, I think you've got some awesome podcasts out there um, from some terrific hamstring research and uh, of the ones I've listened to over the, uh, the recent episodes. And um, I guess, we, yeah, I thought we'd sort of touch on hamstring a little bit and see if we can sort of pull some of the components of where I've picked different research bits up and how that might just fit within our hamstring management um, or rehab process without going to sort of the depths of research detail around that but just where I've pulled a few things and and try to tie it into how our process works so if I step through that maybe in the early phases of of a hamstring rehab and uh, you can stop me at any point and have a bit of a chat and clarify something I might be missing that'd be that'd be awesome Um, but uh, yeah as I sort of mentioned there I think uh, let's just say someone clearly uh, has a hamstring injury or have done a hamstring injury, they're probably first and foremost key part within the whole concept and almost one of the most important is just that early communication and how that's worded both to the player and, and externally. So we have a really strict and sound process that uh, would be like myself and the doctor that would work through the initial diagnost- diagnostics and I guess uh, prognosis based off uh, early assessment and, and, and imaging. Um, you know, it, it's a funny often conversation around like timeframes but I think within the, uh, the environment we're in, it, it is helpful to set some time frames. So you get a concept of, okay, this is the injury. You need to respect healing times. We know we're off here. It's, it's going to be roughly this amount of time. So let's just say it's a, you know, it's a four to five-week hamstring. And, and we always make sure we use the, the concept. It will depend on how your rehab goes. It, it could go quicker if you move through these stages really well or it could go slower if we don't. So I guess trying to say we're respecting our imaging uh, but we're not solely just looking at imaging and making decisions based off that. We're going to really work through our clinical process and how you respond. And a lot of the research would say those first seven days starts to give you a real ind- indication of um, how that's going to progress along. So, again, when we communicate things to coaches and the like on timeframes, then, you know, it's always leave a little bit of room for error there um, and, and always say that we're going to see how we go over the next few days and and, and we'll keep them updated on the process. So that's probably the first part. And, um, you know, it's really important to make sure the athlete hears that first from us and it's not then him speaking to other staff and speculating around what that might be or asking the rehab coach or asking them um, another, you know, uh, staff member about what they might have heard or what they think. It's just really clear, concise, it's consistent message from, uh, I guess, the, the key point uh, people in that, which would be the doctor and physios, that they get a really uh, concise and, and clear communication pathway uh, and not getting too caught up in sort of, the other bit so that's probably one thing we're really strong on there and then from from that process obviously i would look at or physio or uh, would do a a detailed assessment on 
the player, so player per se, so that's probably more global to the injury, So um, and as well as the hamstring in this case. So uh, without going into too much detail on the actual hamstring assessment at the moment, like we know that uh, oh, there's some really good research uh, bits to suggest that the influence things like a lumbar pelvic control might play on hamstrings, uh, and this probably pl- applies to that player where I've talked around um, you know, they're a bit more experienced. We know they've got general decent hamstring capacity. We'll certainly assess that, but also we need to look at other things that may be tying in. So uh, stepping aside from the hamstring, I'll be looking at some lumbar pelvic control uh, where they're at with that. So even just some basic tests like a double leg lowers, can they control their, their feet all the way to the ground without sort of dipping into anterior pelvic tilt? Um, what is their hip extension strength like? So we'll, um, whether that's pre-injury or at a, when the injury is it's, it's ready, we'll probably get an indication on where their hip extension strength is at. Um, early on, it's easy to look at sort of some foot and ankle stuff. I, I think around, uh, you know, in the high-speed running and not getting any collapse through the foot and ankle, so making sure they've got good foot and ankle stiffness. And so obviously assessing ankle range of motion, assessing their ankle strength and capacity is an important component. So, you know, is there any is there inversion, eversion, strength down? Is there deficit in? you know, first toe extension uh, and just maybe looking at those things in a little bit more depth. This is like day one, day two. So I'm just starting to get a, a bigger picture on things. Do they have good foot and ankle stiffness? If we haven't got a recent testing on that, we might look at that in the next couple of days. Um, are they playing with any other niggles at the moment? Is there some knee issues that might be, you know, causing some guarding through the hamstrings that, you know, maybe we can look to try to clean up with some hands-on work or just some really optimise their, their gym loading and things like that? Uh, you know, clearly looking at our, the hip extension and how both legs work uh, to interact. So, uh, you know, early on we'd be making sure we're optimising our hip extension range of motion through some rec fem uh, length work or, you know, psoas and uh, some hands-on work through maybe the anterior muscle structures of TFL and, and psoas as well as then, you know, clearly it's nice and easy to have a look at hip abduction strength and things in that space, which I think will tie, you know, a lot into our some of our drills and some of our exercises through the mid-stance running phase. So I guess first up, that's probably the concept of where we're looking, we're trying to tie in around what other things might be contributing to this. Clearly, we're going to be looking at their recent loading history um, and what might have happened there. The preceding eight weeks, was there changes in that? Did they have a previous injury? All those sort of things would come into play, but um, talking here probably more in you know what I'm, I'm having a chat to with the player in the physio space. Um, and clearly just start to get an idea on where the hamstring is at through your routine hammy tests, so length tests, max hip flexion, and some flexibility bits, which I'll chat through uh, shortly. So uh, and, and so basically stepping through that, we know we're going to start doing some hamstring loading soon, but what else is going to be unique within this program that's really targeted to this player to um, address what we think might have been causing it? So that's where then we'll sit down with the rehab coach and be like, all right, these are probably his two or three key things that we really need to nail down and hit. And we start that probably day one, so that might be some of that length work, some hip extension strength work and some foot and ankle strength or, or stiffness bits um, that would step sit separately to the hamstring work. So that sort of gets going straight away. Our rehab coach would set up the, um, I guess, our pathway or plan based on a rough prognosis or timeline. So, uh, And that would sort of start to kick into gear almost day, day one, day two. Early on, we'll respect the healing, uh, allow a little bit of recovery, but... Uh, when they're ready, we'll start them, you know, once they're walking pain-free and things like that, we'll just get them moving with some basic drills, um, some side-to-side drills and some basic uh, linear mechanic drills uh, that would step through in the next day or so. And I think that's an important part to, you know, uh, they talk about uh, running mechanics and, and, 
and how that, you know, can tie into both our injury prevention and within our management. Um, actually, Dean Benton did a good masterclass on that and Jonas Dododo does obviously a fair bit of uh, work through it as well as Jordan and, and JB Marine. So uh, I think, you know, in the old days, or when I, when I first, not old days, but first turned out to the club, you know, Sherry and Best was a paper that was referred and that was like one of the first hamstring papers around neuromuscular patterns and movement. And I think, you know, it still holds true, but I think now we probably use um, – some really sound coaching around um, good running mechanics and good patterns and positions within their drills. So, uh, and we can start that really early. It's a nice one to build confidence for the athlete, nice one to be able to get them moving. And then it also obviously clearly ties on to maybe some stuff around their, their running mechanics in the later phases. So um, kicking that thing off nice and early as well as then, you know, as soon as we can, we're getting them running. And even though, um, you know, we know the hamstrings work at high speeds, but I think we target to have the, the athlete running normal volume to what the main group would or what the athlete usually would in the first week. So might run at day three if it's a stock standard four-week four ha- hamstring uh, and we try to get if it's 20K plus for the week, um, whatever that player would be doing. So certainly volume running would be safe um, whilst we're probably doing some sharper drilling work, uh, addressing what we think is probably driving uh, into that hamstring injury a little bit and then gradually bringing in a, a little bit of the stuff around acceleration patterns and positions um, Certainly going back to the injury mechanism, if it was more of Excel injury, it'd be probably a, a higher priority. But I still think, again, a lot of the research from JB Marin and, and how important that is to, uh, you know, drive through our initial for first uh, three steps of the acceleration pattern. So early on, we might just be doing some basic wheel, wall drills. And then once they're ready in the next few days, just moving into some uh, upright sleds or upright prowler sort of pushing and then gradually moving to more horizontal positions and, and increasing the load on that over the first one to two weeks. Um, and then I feel like, you know, if, if that's in, in the factor and we're, we're working through that process well, then it, it leads us nicely into where we want to actually uh, excel a little bit more maximally on field and lead into our running speeds. Um, and then, yeah, I guess for where I, I would be working in that, so or, or a physio in those early phases, we'd probably be doing it together with the rehab coach uh, typically, so maybe the first few days with some run drills uh, in our space, the physio would be doing it because the, the rehab guy would be out on track with some other injured guys. Um, but as soon as they're out running, you know, they'll be out running with the, with the fitness and, and rehab coach. Um, and, you know, we would be playing that real key role as their loading increases uh, to, as I said, really monitor any changes on in, uh, on some of our key things. And for me, that is very much around probably flexibility tells it like a nice tale. Uh, of that so flexibility being uh, neural flexibility so if there's any restriction within that space certainly like the hip extension range of motion and um, how important that is for our hamstring length as well as um, your, your standard hamstring length test of an active knee or a max hip flexion active knee extension so I'll measure that pretty much every day uh, especially in the morning of running days and I'll measure that with a, a clinometer so I think uh, a value with if it's five or ten degrees out that you probably can't pick up with the eye, but if it is five or ten degrees different, then that's just like something small to pick up, and uh, probably wouldn't change what I'd do. But I'd note that, and I'd probably try and correct that with some uh, manual therapy and things like that. Um, but I think uh, it's funny I had a um, hamstring not too long ago, which was his second injury in two years. It was like a kicking related injury, um, so you'd be, if it kicked from fifty meters. And would sort of wind up and would get like a, a bit of a distal hamstring. It would have a low-grade distal hamstring strain with kicking, which is an unusual mechanism. Uh, obviously, you take him through a slump test and that would be quite restricted. 
I was, I was amazed to probably see uh, in the last couple of years, you know, over a short period of time, how much improvement we can get in that slump in neuromobility just from some routine work, uh, some self-exercise things, and, and really then about maintaining that. And I think the margin for error for some of these guys is like so small that, you know, they might just drop off on some exercise that they're bits or they're at a bit of back pain and they're carrying a bit of uh, neural, neural restriction. It doesn't take much to sort of offset so that. So I think if, you know, as a physio, if I can optimise five or ten degrees within there, any of those hamstring length tests, and it's really going to reduce the strain on the hamstrings at the, the high level. So certainly trying to nail that stuff early on uh, is probably a really key part for me. Something I wanted to kind of um, touch on a second ago, when, when you are doing that kind of early, maybe early plyometric or early running work with the athletes, do you have certain loads or speeds that you cap them at, at certain stages in rehab or are you kind of going off of, um, say, changes in flexibility, symptoms? What what kind of, other than the stuff you mentioned on neural sensitivity and range, is there any anything else that um, guides you through that process or, or, or limits you? You, do you mean they're like the actual running drill stuff, or more in the running when we start to bring them up into some height, into some speeds? More in the running, where the where the speeds actually more of a factor than the than when yeah, you're training. Yeah, okay, yeah, for sure. I guess um, it's probably the next phase where we go with this uh, anyway. So I guess yeah, certainly through the drilling stuff, you're just getting a bit of a feel on where they're at. You want to know that they're range and feeling comfortable with all those things, and it's probably just getting a sense on how they feel. But certainly before we're building them up, so that. First week, let's say it is the volume-based running, which is not putting too much things at risk. But uh, then from there, you're generally pretty comfortable to bring them up closer to sort of 80% speeds, um, but uh, without too much duress uh, happening there over the next phase. And you do that just through some graded 80s or 100s. And I guess your question there is what um, you know, what other things would I look at to sort of make sure that the athlete's in place before they're doing that? That certainly comes back to probably strength and our capacity within that measure. So. Uh, I do just a, a graded isometric testing. So first of all, you do your routine um, hamstring contraction test, which is on a physio table and get an idea. But I like to then um, get a number and do some isometric testing in different ranges. So probably more uh, an outer range bias and having pre-injury numbers on this, we, we get a sense on where they're actually at in relative to where they've been before. So I certainly want them like closer to 90% of um, – in that isometric contraction of their pre-injury status or at least to the, you know, if you don't have that to, to I guess, to the other side um, before we're starting to sort of creep them up into those sort of 80% zones. So, you know, typically that isometric contraction is back anywhere from 7 to 10 days and, you know, up until then you might be running 80% and then you're more comfortable to get to, um, you know, hover around that 80% mark, which we know the hamstrings might start to kick into gear a fair bit more after that. So it, I like to at least have those strength measures in place um, first I guess, do you need to do that? You could probably don't need to all the time, but for me, it gives great confidence that, okay, I'm at least covering off on, you know, the contraction here is sound and that would also, uh, I'd also be gathering information through that first seven to 10 days on what they're doing in the gym, um, which I didn't touch on too much earlier, but through that phase, they're doing their normal patterns of motion, movement within the gym, they're squatting, uh, step up doing all the normal bits and as well as obviously commencing some hamstring loading um, so that would be sort of some work over the hip so single and double leg over the hip work so RDL type motions whether that's you know on a, on a 45 degree or just doing it with the, the, the barbell as well as obviously some some targeted hamstring loading so um, depending on the athlete I might start with some timed under tension work in either some long isometrics or it might be some just a, 
at least achieving an endurance measure for their single leg hamstring um, bench bridge, which should be at least 25 or 30 repetitions. And that's probably where, you know, that older athlete or the more experienced guy will probably eat that up. But if you've got a 20-year-old who's never had an injury before, they're probably struggling to do that. So that you'd probably target that a little bit more for that guy. Um, but for the experienced player, you're probably back doing some decent, you know, eccentric loading, uh, which might start with, you know, some, some eccentric slides and loading that up to some eccentric slides and that will then progress back into, I guess, a Nordic uh, exercise, which, uh, yeah, I, I, some people think Australians just love Nordics because a bit of the research has been done uh, over here. It's certainly a part of the picture, but it's not the sole at all, uh, <laughs> the, the only thing that we would use. And I'd be fair to say across probably all the clubs within the AFL, I think it'd, it'd be routinely used, but not excessively. Maybe two sets of three or four reps of once a week is probably the extent of where that would be at. And um, because there's devices that record strength on that and it's reasonably reliable and you often have pre-injury numbers on that. We use that as another measure for where we're at through our rehab process. So I guess after that, isometric testing is back to sort of pre-injury levels and they've commenced a Nordic. You know, we'd want to know that their Nordic numbers, uh, uh, what they were prior or if if it was a deficit, they're much better. So we'd probably work off anywhere from 4.5 to 5 times their body weight being a target for, for their Nordic and at least within, you know, symmetry of less than 10 degrees would be ideal in in that space is just one one other measure of hamstring strength. We obviously do a few, but um, yeah, that for me then would be you know if you, if you're doing that with a Nordic and we're starting to lift uh, our capacity within our work over the hip and things in the gym are sort of back to our uh, sound levels of what we want. Then you're starting to know okay, well they've got the endurance, they've got the strength here. Um, you know, I might throw some a bit of energy storage and release work at them within the gym prior to high-speed running just as a level of exposure, can they handle that and they feel comfortable with that? And then you're starting to build confidence within the athlete who's out there running 80%. He's ticking off your hamstring markers in the gym and demonstrating he's got the capacity. Um, you're also addressing what you thought might have caused that injury and now you're starting to, I guess, build that uh, information to be able to say, all right, let's, let's start to tip out to 85%, 90%. Um, and sort of go from there, we'd probably want most guys uh, at least running between 90 and 95%, uh, clearly being able to do that and, and feel comfortable and, and fully trained before they were to play. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, stepping forward here a little bit, but making sure that those numbers that we referenced back at the start, that their exposure is above 85%, um, their, their speed exposure is above that uh, or, or threshold zone of that high speed running of what I referred to as anywhere from 300 to 1,000 metres for a game and what, what is that across the whole week of a typical training and game week and making sure that's at the level. And if it's not at the level before they play, then it's really important that we get them to that level and that's then held as a real consistent approach every week that they're uh, achieving within the, the zones that we'd want to know that they're, you know, not going to, you know, drop out of the, you know, I guess for want of a better word, spike or under under load um, on their high speed running or that sort of threshold based run, uh, as well as um, yeah, and, and then moving forward and having that that training approach, I think is uh, is really important to to make sure they're just fully training with the team and and by that stage you just need to know that they're ready on that day and you can sort of um, yeah away they go hopefully. I think this gets spoken about probably less, uh, at least in podcasts, but teams obviously do this. But how do you approach kind of monitoring post-injury when they are back to playing or that stage when they're they're back playing, but you still want probably a decent amount of hamstring work and protective work 
in their program? Yeah, good question. I think, um, you know, something I didn't sort of touch on there in that later phase of rehab, which we sort of would skim over a bit more, um, but where I've seen or where I've gone wrong in the past and where I still think some people do, especially probably also more so with calves actually, but you're in that phase and we can get a bit too excited and try to do too much hamstring loading and it's like we're trying to, oh, it says we've got to do some stuff over here, we've got to do some fast catching bits and then you've got to do these Nordic things and you've got to, and all of a sudden they're doing heaps of hamstring work and they're just overloading and overloading the hammies and then on field they're, they're not going to feel as good or, you know, God forbid something happens because you're just doing too much within the gym. And I think that comes back leading into your question there to um, as we, you know, they have returned to play, um, what through your rehab process did you earmark as the biggest things that that player needs? So is it, a, is it their level of... What exercise do you want out of it? What loading do you need them to get to? If they're not there yet, that's fine. You can gradually work to that level. But I guess it's trying not to do too much. It's picking the pieces out of two or three key things. Um, and I think post-return to play, it's a really um, delicate time period where I don't like to change too much. So probably the week or so leading into return to play, you'd sort of want their general gym program um, consistent and pretty sound and of what it's going to look like thereafter for the following weeks because I don't want to be adding new things in. The, the new load is going to be the game load and um, and then from there you're probably talking around um, getting back to a level of uh, compliance or optimising, you know, all those tests we've talked about, so making sure all our flexibility tests are back, making sure our isometric pool is back and they're not having any palpation soreness um, post the game. So that's first of all they've responded and pulled up well getting a little bit of base loading in there but not trying to then continue to kick things up a gear um, and maybe just um, hold that balance for I think it's probably a sensitive period for probably three to four weeks. Um, and I think uh, where I guess also where I've probably missed the boat in the past a bit is I think uh, you might get a player through, they play, you review them after the game, they move through that week and it's sort of like curtains like that's it, they're done, back into play and they sort of miss a bit but yeah, it's super important that through that phase you are following up on all those key work on areas that we talked about that we think might be playing a role that they're still either addressing them or they're holding their, uh, they're in a nice consistent level if that's the neuromobility or hip flexibility or what have you, as well as the hamstring loading is like nicely consistent and they're able to get good load through that uh, week to week as well as, um, you know, they're running lump numbers in that as I've touched on are consistent and uh, I think, you know, Malone out of, out of Ireland and the Gaelic work are doing some great stuff on speed exposures and and week-to-week changes within uh, how that might look. So I think that's a nice reference point to people to look at and I think that's probably the biggest thing of um, balancing that over the the four weeks. Um, So I'll play my role in like looking at the athlete and how they're responding but it's up to us as a team to make sure that those numbers are are really consistent uh, about what we want so we're not getting any any drops um, in both performance and sort of something that will create a spike in the next one or two weeks and maybe lead them a little bit vulnerable. Now, you obviously have a podcast and uh, with SportsMap and, of course, you you provide education as well. Um, and I know recently you've been out to a team in, in the States doing some education. I just want to kind of hear your thoughts on uh, continued development for physios and PTs and, you know, what can or what should they do in the event that they get stuck with a difficult injury presentation? Yeah, and I think it's um, it, it's good to see, obviously, you know, I love the, the work you guys do uh, and 
Rob Pacey in the UK and and hopefully and like what we do and I'd like to link link in a little bit with you guys like more moving forward and I think because ultimately that education space it's driven from well, for me it's a personal drive for me to get better as a physio so it's still no matter what I'm doing it's still largely trying to embed and improve like who I am as a physio and what I'm doing and just chasing down that information so the fact that you know I love how you're how passionate you are about that space and that's the same for me in the sense of just working to always um you know find those new bits of information that you think you know as you get more experience you know you don't know what you don't know and you're constantly driven by that in the sense of uh you don't want to sort of get caught out and stuck too much by just not knowing not knowing something you just want to be on top of things um more and more and there's always new information coming out and evolving so i like to think that's where we sit both from uh, what you're doing in the podcast space and now certainly our masterclass platform to be able to make people uh, better as physios and feel more confident and capable in what they're doing. Um, and that's sort of, you know, driven from some fantastic clinicians out there to sort of to pass that information across. But, um, yeah, I mean, we were out in the States recently doing doing a courses um, over there and hopefully we'll be out there a little bit more uh, in future doing some, doing some bits. But I think... Um, I guess for me, where I would go if I get stuck like with a case, um, my method is sort of I just sort of first probably go out in quite a wide wide space. So I'd start like doing my research around uh, online and seeing what type of readings there are and papers there are. Um, going then into some um, podcast space and, and listening through on that if I'm getting stuck on a particular topic. So. Um, and then from there, I would love to try to reach out and actually chat to chat to people where I find this super beneficial. So and it's probably more collating all that information. I think I can collate as much information as I want. And the, the issue with doing that when maybe as a more of a junior clinician is you, you just get totally lost in that information and you find yourself trying to do a million things and getting completely lost. And the biggest probably takeaway is just being able to still have a clear sort of processes and systems that you use and finding your own method and I think that maybe comes with some experience where it's so like you have your method and but you can grab a little bit of little bit of this from you know Menaguchi or a little bit of this from Fergal Kieran or Ben McDonald and you add that into your into your weight of things but it's not like you're off trying to be different clinicians and try to grab everything so I think first and foremost is probably developing your method in how you are as a physio and what works for you and not trying to sort of be everyone else and work within your strengths and what makes you you good. And then clearly from there, when you get a little bit stuck within a topic, it's still like you've got your sound process and you get that in place with the athlete first. So I would, for me, uh, if I'm going to seek a, another opinion, if I'm, and I'm probably privileged in a position to work at Essendon where if I want another um, opinion or I get a little bit stuck, I could just go to, it's amazing that I could pick up the phone and probably anyone you know, they're often willing to help you from the likes of, you know, Edna King to Craig Purdom and Phil Glasgow are often helpful, you know, to give you a bit of a hand. But if you are in a clinic and, you know, that might not be the case. Um, so I guess I like to just make sure I get all my ducks in a row, how I think they should be, like right to the level. I'm like, clearly this still needs work, so I'm going to push this player because that's a key area to get that strength up or fix that hip extension or fix their running stuff and where I think they're at the level. And then it might be like, oh, now I need my 5 or 10%. Like where do I go from here? Um, or I'm reaching a bit of a sticking point, let's go somewhere else and not sort of just um, be lost and just like where am I and just try to grab everything from everywhere to start with. Um, so I don't know if that answers it too well, but I guess, yeah, my point is like build your, build your system and build what works for you and then and pull the information into that to, to sort of guide your 
uh, further progression in the space of your learnings um, to sort of tidy things up and just progress year on year from there. Probably like yourself, I think like one of the benefits definitely that I've found with the podcast at least, but I don't think people have to have a podcast to be able to reach out to these people is, is, you know, your phone book grows and you, you build relationships with topic leaders. So great people, you know, the best people you can reach out to and ask for help. But the thing I've noticed is that when I do do that, I really want to get my house in order before I have that phone call, because there's nothing more embarrassing than if you pick up the phone to ask somebody for some help on a, on a tricky case. And yeah. very early on in that phone call, you just haven't cleared something very simple. So I think like just the mentality shift of, okay, I'm going to pick up the phone and talk to this really good person about this topic. It, it kind of naturally makes you get your, get your ducks in a row before you uh, speak to them. And that may answer the questions before you actually get to them. But um, at least the level of detail or the, uh, the, the problem solving they're going to do is going to become high level when that happens. Yeah. Oh, mate, spot, spot on, spot on. And, uh, yeah, even even to a greater degree when you're taking an athlete to see someone as well, which, you know, I do I do regularly uh, as I see it as a great learning tool. But you don't want to roll in there with the athlete that you've been working with and they just – and then all of a sudden the other physio is just like, oh, what's going on here? Like that is miles off. You really want to try to, yeah, get it to that level. Um and then, you know, hopefully you can add add some cream to that and, and just get some new learnings and some new direction from that. I think that's really important. But, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, I guess, um, yeah. Right. yeah. And, and that's where, again, some of that, that not to try to, the masterclass platform stuff is actually where I've, like, been so lucky to be able to go and sit in with athletes um, or, or excellent clinicians is why I've actually tried to create that to pass that on to everyone. So, because I know if you're in a clinic and it is harder to get access to those people, but tried to create that in the sense of how lucky I've been to get those learnings because it's one of the best ways to learn. Like you get your, you know, your ego, you drop your ego and your management stuff gets pulled apart a little bit and exposed and you've just got to be able to be like, yep, okay, I could have done that better. From now on I'll do this bit better. Um, so it's a, it's a brilliant way to learn and, and hopefully uh, some of the work within the podcast stuff that you guys do and some of the videos and things that we have uh, give people the opportunity to sort of get that same level of learning. I feel like also when people are in that higher level, more applied learning environment, regardless of what stage they're at, if there is some, let's just call it academic gaps, you know, just knowledge things, knowledge gaps, um, those settings are great for teasing those out anyway. And that you can, you can still get through on those courses quite easily and on the side or afterwards or in the evening or when you get back read the papers that you need to to kind of fill in the gaps of, of why that applied stuff may then make sense so yeah. I, I think it's a great way to do it yeah spot on spot on nick where's the um I'm, I'm aware of time and i know you're kind of early in your work day and i'm late in mine where, yep. where can people follow you and what you know what, what else have you got going on at the moment uh yeah yeah so i guess certainly um follow us at sports map which is on instagram twitter uh, website sportsmap.com.au I'm not huge personally like on social media which is other than uh, resharing that stuff but I'm on Twitter and like LinkedIn is probably the main ones you find me um, so happy to, certainly happy for people to reach out or connect across those those mediums and platforms um, for us moving forward or for me um, you know we've got maybe eight games left of the season and, and hopefully into some finals for where we're at at the moment so 
working through some stuff there at the footy club and that'll carry on through. Um, sports map wise, we've got some courses at the end of the year with Tim McGrath and Jonas Dodo, uh, as well as a conference coming next year in, in Melbourne. And um, yeah, and we'll continue to sort of uh, keep sort of pumping out some good content across our, our platform. We've got Sue Mays from Australian Ballet and uh, Stu Wymer doing some stuff on Cindersmosis and, and Edna King's one coming out soon. So um, yeah, mate, just keep sort of working in that space. But um, yeah. Nothing too. Oh, we've been actually heading over to your neck of the woods. Oh, you're in you're in the US these days, but we're heading to the UK in October to do some filming with some awesome clinicians there. So uh, in October, so looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, mate, more than happy for people to reach out. It's been fantastic to jump on and have a chat, and good to connect with you in the last couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, look forward to sort of keeping things um, moving along and and, and to keep sharing some uh, ideas and thoughts. Yeah, likewise, perfect. Well, thank you very much, mate, and yeah, thank you for your time. No worries, mate. Appreciate it. You're a star. Thank you.